I think Deborah really already um, referenced this quite well earlier when she said it's standards that equally meet the needs of both men and women or equally reflect the needs of both men and women and therefore provide equal benefit to or outcomes for men and women. And I said something very similar as well. That's that's what a gender responsive standard is. And I think what Deborah pointed out, that's the key difference. It's, it's the intentional and the explicit consideration of what do the fact that there are gender differences, both physical and gender roles and norms, what does that fact mean for the standard you're developing? How, how might that have implications for the standard you're developing? And therefore, what do you need to do about it? BSI presents The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on gender responsive standards. Hello, and welcome to The Standard Show. My name is Matthew Childs, and I am with Cindy Paragill. Hey, Cindy, how are you? I'm trying to keep body and soul together. And you? Trying to avoid too much soul searching. Ah, is there a story to tell? Maybe, but not today. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we're looking at the issue of gender responsive standards. And the voice you heard at the top of the episode was that of BSI's Stephanie Einan, defining what is meant by that term, gender responsive standards. And the Deborah Stephanie was referring to is Deborah Wattier from the European Standards Organization, SEN and Senelec, who is also joining us on this episode. Yes, and we have a conversation with them in two parts. In part one, we'll hear about the issue of gender bias or blindness or neutrality when it comes to standards and dig a bit deeper into this term, gender responsive standards. And of course, we'll hear about their standards journeys too. And in part two, we'll hear about how the standards community is responding to the challenge of developing gender responsive standards. And all of this in the context of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe's Gender Responsive Standards Declaration, the three-year anniversary of which was earlier this month. And also in part two, we asked Deborah and Stephanie about gender responsive standards in terms of diversity and inclusion more broadly. Indeed. In this episode, we don't have a standards desk of news, but we do have sandwiched in between parts one and two of Deborah and Stephanie, the latest of my favorite standard. This time, it's a turn of standards development manager Lockheed Humphreys. She tells us why BSEN 124 for manhole and gully covers is so important to her. And listen out for details of a new standards committee on gender equality for which Lockheed is recruiting members. All of that to come. But first, a reminder that here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. Do you want to help make people's lives easier, safer and more enjoyable? If so, why not become a standards maker with BSI and have your say on the development of standards? Standards affect all of us every day, wherever we go, whatever we do. By defining good practice, they help people, organizations, the economy and society to do things better. We welcome applicants from all fields, 
backgrounds and career stages. Our goal is to have a balance of views around the table. If you want to make a difference and shape the world through standards, start your standards making journey now by visiting bsigroup.com forward slash get involved. So in this first part of our conversation with Deborah and Stephanie, we'll hear about the issue of gender bias or blindness or neutrality in relation to standards development and examples of how this has manifested itself in the past. And also what we mean when we say gender responsive standards. Now, Deborah Wattier is a project manager in the management center at Sen and Senelec, working in areas of gender and inclusiveness as they relate to standards. And Stephanie is head of standards makers engagement and inclusion at BSI. She also leads on equity, diversity and inclusion in standards development and is recruiting the next generation of standards makers. But naturally, being the standards show, we started by asking them about their standards journeys. Now, Deborah, on the uh, on the standards show, we love a standards journey. So we really want to know what yours is. So what's been your standards journey? You know, how and when did it start for you and where are you now? Well, I wish I could say that my journey started when I was a young girl inspiring to become a standard maker. But my journey started when I joined the Sense and Like Management Center. Um, and that was three years ago. Um, so, um, of course, in three years, my role has evolved a lot and I've taken on more projects and different aspects of uh, standardization along the way. Um, but that would be my journey, a three year long journey, very happy journey too. And what is it, you know, what, what do you find appealing about working in the standards world? My favorite aspect, which was something I was actually, it was actually part of my criteria for my new job was the um, multiculturality and the international aspect. The fact that our members are from all across um, Europe, that we are also in contact with um, our counterparts at the international level and that I get to exchange on the daily basis with people who have very different realities. Now, Steph, uh, you told us your standards journey way back in episode three of the podcast, if you can remember that long ago. So for people that haven't listened to that particular episode, although people should go back and listen to that, what's been your standards journey? Um, Similar to Deborah, I can't say that it was an aspiration for me from a young age. Um, In fact, I am now embarrassed to admit, but being open and honest as I am, I will admit that before I applied for the job at BSI, I really didn't know what standards were. Um, And I say I'm embarrassed by that because now that I do know, I thought to myself, how could I be an adult in the world and not really know? Uh, But what's interesting, in fact, about that is as someone who's, you know, relatively well educated in a professional career track, it tells you something about the challenge of engaging people, I think, in standards development. If, If you don't know what they are or why they're important, you're scarcely going to know how to get involved with making them, or in fact, that you even can. Um, So that's my standards journey. I I heard about standards when I um, applied for my job at BSI in 2015. um, And it's been a fantastic journey ever since. I think it's an inspiring opportunity to help shape the world we want to see, because standards are everywhere um, and affect everything and everyone. Um, So I'm really um, excited and inspired by my career in standards so far and looking forward to the to the next chapter. That was really lovely to hear about your story, um, Stephanie, and yours too, Deborah. But 
Um, let's cut to the key issue here. So what is gender bias in relation to standards development? I mean, is gender bias even the right term? I don't know if you want to say bias or perhaps um, blindness or, or just simple lack of um, explicitly considering gender, which, which I could you could attribute to the existence of, of gender bias in in society and therefore also in standards development because let's be honest standards development is a reflection of wider society and therefore it incorporates all all the good and the bad that exists in in wider society as well and so I think the challenge has been, you know, we're we're trying to create standards that work in multiple countries, contexts, companies, environments, etc. And so there, there's there's a lot of challenge already in that. And and I think the key challenge in standards development has been the the lack of explicit consideration for the implications of gender differences. So so what what is true because of the fact that men and women are different, not just physically, but also because of the different social norms and gender roles that exist for men and women. And therefore, how, how should a standard be designed to make sure that it provides the same benefits or outcomes to both men and women equally um, and or can equally considers the different needs um, of men and women when it's being developed to ensure that it therefore provides those those equal benefits and outcomes. So gender bias exists, it exists everywhere. Bias generally exists and exists everywhere because bias is a flaw basically in how our brains work. It, 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 it's a it's a thing our brains do to enable us to process the myriad of inputs, if you want to think of it that way, that we're getting constantly all the time. And, and really, um, it's the only way our brains can operate, I think, without imploding. And, and so in some ways, it's a very good thing and a very helpful thing, the way our brains operate um, with, with this way we categorize and catalog and make sense of things. But it can lead to inequalities. Um, so, so that's why it presents a problem. But it, it exists um, everywhere. And so it also exists in standards development. That's a really helpful explanation. Thank you. How about you, Deborah? Anything you'd like to add to that or a different perspective? Um, different, no, because I think one of the, the, the key elements of everything, uh, all the activities we've been uh, putting together in the standardization community towards um, the gender topic is that we um, really strive to have an aligned point of view and and work towards the same direction so not a different at all exactly the same uh, definition as Stephanie I think the whole idea of of gender bias blindness neutrality some call it as well is just that it's the opposite of gender responsiveness which as Stephanie explained is actively trying to take into account all of the specificities that are linked to the diversity of gender um, for um, making sure that our deliverables in the end are as representatives of the, the diverse reality of the, the users of the product, for example, um, eventually. 
Now, Deborah, you mentioned that term, gender-responsive standards, and we want to come back to that. But before we do that, um, Stephanie, you explained there very neatly the issue around, you know, gender bias uh, and blindness. Can you give us some examples of that, you know, in the development of standards in the past? So, so one, one, um, one that I think a lot of people would just summarily dismiss as inconsequential is, is a great one. And it's um, about the climate in buildings, specifically the temperature. So I forget what degree it's set at, but, but what I do know is, is the quote unquote optimal temperature within office spaces is based on um, the metabolic rate of a, six, a 69 kilogram 40 year old white male and the average metabolic rate of, of that um, physical <laughs> type of, of person. And, and you might think, oh yeah, women do always complain that it's too cold in the office, but what's the big deal? They can just put a, a, a jumper on. Um, but actually it is a big deal because, because studies have shown that when you're too cold, it affects how you, how well you perform, how, how well you can think and how productive you can be and everything else. So, so although we would, you know, bat it back as inconsequential, um, it, it matters because especially if you're talking about the temperature in a workplace, it has a direct impact on, on women's ability to perform equally well or, or to, their, to their best ability in, in the workplace. And of course, then there's a range of others that, that are, you know, much uh, scarier affecting literally life and limb. So for example, um, passive restraint systems in vehicles um, where crash test dummies, there is a, a, a supposed female crash test dummy, but it only represents the fifth percentile of, of women. So only 5%, you know, on average of women would fit into the shape, size, et cetera, being used. Whereas for males, it covers about 95% of men. And, and so the net result of that is that women are more likely to suffer um, serious um, or fatal injury in car crashes than men, um, and um, you know significantly so. So, you know, it, it is it is extremely important from from the seemingly innocuous to the definitely not innocuous. We, we have to expl explicitly consider these implications to ensure that. The standard we're setting, no pun intended, um, g gives the same outcomes to both men and women. We do love puns intended, so don't worry about that at all. <laughs> I just wonder from your perspective, uh, Deborah, any, any examples that you have to share? Well, first of all, I want to say that I, I really, really like the example of the of the environment, uh, the 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 temperature. Sorry, in in offices, as a woman, I've been a victim of this, and uh, I also really like the example because when you speak about non gender responsive standards or um, standards that have a gender bias, if you will, um, we the, the typical example will be any consumer products so it'll be uh, a bike for example um, or it'll be um, a typical example will be um, PPE so personal protective equipment surgical gloves etc uh, etc et but what we are trying to push as a message towards our um, standardization community is that gender implications are potentially present in any standards in any 
area of of um that is being standardized by uh, Sen and Senelec and their members. Um, so I, I particularly like this example. Um, and I have a, a sort of counterexample, um, or it's not really counterexample, but I do have a, a anecdote story that I like to share. It's um, the story of a, a male colleague who happens to not be on the um, average um, size of, of any man. He's uh, shorter than the, the average um, man, I would say. Um, and he uh, was going to buy a new bike. And he was very, very excited to have his new bike on that day. Unfortunately, when he went to the shop, uh, none of the bikes were um, fitting for his size because they were all um, fitted for for something that did not cover his own specificities. And I really like this um, example because to me it illustrates really well that um, gender responsiveness is not about making sure that female specificities are taken into account in standardization. It's about looking at inclusiveness as a whole and making sure that everyone's specificities is taking into account. And that day, that bike shop lost huge business. And I think that's why it matters. Let's be inclusive um, and and make sure that everybody is, is taken into account. We're not talking about gender responsive standards with the exclusive aim of um, uh, having a preference for women's needs or, or only meeting the needs of women. What, what we know is that when you more intentionally and explicitly consider the implications of gender differences, you, you, you create outputs and outcomes that are better for both men and women because you start to examine things more closely in such a way that the example Deborah just gave is far less likely to happen in the future because questions will start to get asked and they'll say, well, okay, well, so, so when we were thinking about the, the male here, were we meeting the needs of, of most males or only a small proportion of males? What, what, what were we using? And, and, and the term that people use a lot is that, Standards have tended to be androcentric, which is you know centered around the male, but it's also quite a specific type of male. Generally, um, generally white, uh, generally from you know the the, the global north, um, etc. Et and so on. And so y- you can see that once you start to ask people to refine their thinking and delve a little deeper and ask some critical questions, it's going to have benefits not just for women but also for men. Thank you both for your examples. And I think I need to chip in here and say I too have, you know, this temperature issue, the one that um, you both raised. And it's just, you know, people just brush it off, but it really does affect your productivity. And I think it's just something that people just need to consider a bit more. So thank you for all your examples. So that was um, gender blindness. Um, But I have another term for you. What is meant by gender responsive standards? So I think Deborah really already um, referenced this quite well earlier when she said it's standards that equally meet the needs of both men and women or equally reflect the needs of both men and women and therefore provide equal benefit to or outcomes for men and women. And I said something very similar as well. That's, That's what a gender responsive standard is. And I think what Deborah pointed out, that's the key difference. It's, it's the intentional and the explicit consideration of 
what do the fact that there are gender differences, both physical and gender roles and norms, what does that fact mean for the standard you're developing? How, how might that have implications for the standard you're developing? And therefore, what do you need to do about it? My favorite standard. Hi, I'm Lockheen Humphreys. I've been working at BSI for around two and a half years as a standards development manager. And you know what? My favorite standard has to be BSEN124, gully tops and manhole tops for vehicular and pedestrian areas. Now, I have a background in publishing as a project manager and an editor, and I started my career in Australia where I worked on lifestyle and travel publications, often with a sustainability bent. From there, I moved to the UK and into business publishing and technical publishing, which is where I first became aware of standards. Uh, It was mainly those that addressed uh, accessible publishing formats, but also some of the human resources standards because I was working peripherally with the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, or the CIPD. So in my current role with BSI, I work mainly across the sustainability sector, and I have some exciting work going on at the moment to do with improving soils, especially for supporting the growth of trees in urban environments, as well as some very new work on gender equality, which I'm still looking for experts to join a new national committee on. So a bit of a plug for that there. All of that said, my favorite standard is BSEN 124, gully tops and manhole tops for vehicular and pedestrian areas. So that might sound a little bit surprising to listeners after the introduction I've just given, because it seems it has nothing to do with my portfolio of work. And that would be true, because it doesn't. So let me explain the choice. I think many people will relate to the feeling that once you know what standards are, you start seeing them everywhere. Uh, And not just BSI's Kite Mark, which is obviously on lots of different products, but the relevant standards numbers as well. So they're printed on bus windows sometimes, or they'll be around on your cables and power plugs in the house, uh, or across hot water bottles. I first started working at BSI only a few months before London went into its first COVID-19 lockdown. Uh, So like everyone else, I was using my daily exercise at lunch or immediately after the workday to go out for a walk or run or get some fresh air and to generally get a break from my desk. Uh, And I started noticing the kite mark on the ground every time I walked over any kind of manhole cover. Uh, And after two years of doing this, I now know that there are many different types of them, uh, and many of them have BSEN124 marked on them. So needless to say, it didn't really help with clearing my mind from work, uh, and even now I still see the number everywhere I go. This segment did inspire me to go and look it up on the BSI shop. Uh, I can tell listeners that it is a standard in six parts that looks at the design and performance of manhole tops, uh, with each part looking at different materials. Uh, The current version is the 2015 version, and this updated the previous 1994 edition, so it's a very well-established standard. I think this is one standard that really reminds me of how prevalent standards are around us, even if we're not always looking for them or aware we're looking at them. And I would challenge anyone now, when you go out for your walks and runs, or you're just generally out and about, to not see the BSEN124 marking, because I promise you will see it every day now. So that's BSEN124, gully tops and manhole tops for vehicular and pedestrian areas. 
my favorite standard. Now, I challenge anyone who's listened to that that the next time they're out walking and walk over a manhole or gully cover and to not look for the standard number on it. Now, just in case you're wondering what the difference between a manhole cover and a gully cover is, Cindy, I bet you are wondering. I am indeed wondering. Well, a drain grid, also known as a gully cover, is designed to prevent materials from passing into the gully and potentially causing blockages within the drainage system while still allowing surface water to pass easily into the drainage system. Whereas a manhole cover or maintenance hole cover is a removable plate forming the lid over the opening of a manhole, an opening large enough for a person to pass through that is used as an access point for an underground vault or pipe. And given that it's called a manhole cover, it's pretty relevant to what we're talking about today. <laughs> that is true. So our thanks to Lockheed for sharing with us her My Favourite Standard. And if you want to share your own My Favourite Standard, then get in touch. Details of how to do so are in the show notes. But before we return to our conversation with Deborah and Stephanie, Lockheed mentioned some new work on gender equality. So she is basically seeking experts to join a new national committee, EDI-337, Gender Equality, which will mirror the work of the new international group ISO-PC-337. The ISO project is seeking to create a standard on the promotion and implementation of gender equality across all sectors and all types of organization. So to express interest or for more information, do get in touch with us here on The Standard Show. Again, details of how to do so are in the show notes. So in this second part of our chat with Deborah and Stephanie, we started by asking them about how the standards community is responding to the challenge of developing gender responsive standards. Well, in a word, I guess I would say very impressively. Um, and uh, to to have watched um, since the outset of the process of developing the UNEC Declaration for Gender Responsive Standards and Standards Development, to be here now, um, less, well, just about two years later, having 80 plus different standards development organizations who have signed the declaration and who are therefore actively creating gender action plans and um, leading the way in establishing, you know, gender responsive standards development environments and um, processes for the creation of gender responsive standards. I, I would say that's pretty amazing. And that's 80 plus organizations around the world, including um, BSI, of course, and CENELEC, and as well as ISO, the International Organization for Standardization, and IEC on the um, international electrotechnical side. So, I think it's it's quite amazing to see such a such a positive um, response. I think certainly there are some challenges, um, but we are making progress. And, and and I think the best start is the fact that this is now an open and ongoing conversation where people are really trying to improve their understanding about why it's important, where we are now, and what we need to change. Um, gender responsive standards or the gender responsive standard initiatives um, that we have put in place at Senselec, but also um, in, in many different uh, 
uh, national standardization bodies such as BSI, but also at international level, et cetera, et cetera. This initiative doesn't only look at the standards themselves, the deliverables, making sure that, as we just explained, they are considering all of the specificities and their implications. Um, it's, it's broader than that. It's also looking at making sure that the technical committees that are drafting those standards also reflect such um, diversity. Um, it's having, for example, we're w more women at the table, but also having this common understanding recognition um, that there is a need for gender expertise in the room. Um, it's it's having that common understanding of those biases that Stephanie mentioned at the beginning. Um, it's looking at the data that they are using to define the different standards. Um, and in general, it's also looking at, at the overall environment within which the, the standards are being drafted. So it's, it's the deliverables themselves, it's the standards themselves, and the entire ecosystem around it that should uh, be ensured as, as diverse and inclusive in terms of gender. It's great that this is a consideration now. And what progress has been made? Um, how, are there any particular standards that have been developed um, so far that are gender responsive that you'd categorize that way? As far as I'm aware, we, we haven't yet badged any standards as gender responsive or here's a new standard that has been developed explicitly to be gender responsive. And I, and I think part of that is, is because we're, we're on a journey and we're still towards the beginning of the journey looking at how do we make gender responsive standards? What what do do we need to provide to the people developing the standards, the, the, the standards makers? How do we need to change the process or the system? So I think we're making great progress on understanding how to ensure we're systematically embedding gender responsive standards as the norm so that so that all of our standards will will be enabled to be developed to be gender responsive but but we're at the start of that process and part of that process is also defining what it, we know what a gender responsive is, standards is in terms of what it does but but how do we identify if we pick up any standard and want to read it and we want to determine is it gender responsive or isn't it how, how do we make that determination and, and through what process can we make that determination? So I think that's also a piece of work um, that needs to happen. I think there are, there are plenty of standards out there which have already been revised because an issue had previously come to light, but it has not been systematic is what I would say. So there's an example around mm -hmm. cook stoves which where the standard was revised because a problem we became aware of a problem um within the standard and it was related to lack of 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 adequate consideration of gender differences and so they went back and they revised it and there will be other examples like that but it, it, you know it's just not systematic and there are also specific standards that will help address issues of gender inequality like ISO 30415, which is about diversity and inclusion in the workplace, that will be a helpful tool for gender equality in the workplace, but it's not per se been developed as a gender responsive standard. It, it had a much wider inclusion remit than just gender equality, but it will, it will be a helpful tool. Um, so that's how I would describe it. Deborah, what would you, what would you say? 
No, I agree. I agree that the the progress that has been made so far is is uh, we're still at the the defining the methodology uh, step. Um, so I don't know of any standard that has been um, designed specifically with a gender responsive approach in mind. Um, there are, as as you said, Stephanie, several examples of standards, be it international or, or from several of our members that. Um, are looking at diversity, some of them specifically gender, some of them broader um, in, for example, um, management, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and one of my favorite examples that I still want to fit in um, is, is a, a Swiss um, deliverable. It's SNR 30,000, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's, it's looking at community masks. Um, and um, I really like that they specifically decided to, to write that standard um, in the German version with a feminine uh, spelling as the default spelling, which is quite a, a big, uh, a big thing if, if, I'm a French, French native speaker, so we have a gendered uh, biased language. So I know it's a big step. So it's not per se um, a, a gender responsive deliverable, but to me, it's a very, very concrete example of a conscious effort that, you know, or, or in concrete action towards gender responsiveness of the standardization system in general. There was some work being done. Um, I can't remember if it was a European standard or an international standard, again, about community face coverings. And I think it was the Swedish um, national standards body that was looking at a draft and they pointed out that the vast majority of, of drawings or images showing the correct way to wear a face mask all depicted men. And the majority of the images depicting how not to wear a face mask depicted women and so you might think oh geez you know what what difference does that make but it makes a big difference like deborah was saying the language makes a big difference you know who who is seen to be doing the wrong thing most of the time and who's seen to be doing the right thing most of the time it makes a difference it sends a message so but but it's interesting that i think in the past n none of these things would have been noticed or even thought about. And so that to me, those to me are, are great signals of, of progress and just the mere impact that having the conversation is having within the standards development ecosystem. From your perspective, um, what would success look like? I think there are um, several steps of success. Um, in a very ideal world, every standard drafter, every standard maker um, in, you know, in any technical committee will have a little thing working in his, in their mind, uh, reminding them of looking at all of the possible implication of the standard and making sure that everyone has been um, considered um, within all the specificities or as we often say as a metaphor that they're um, wearing the gender lenses uh, when they're drafting. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very ideal scenario. I would echo Deborah. For me, the, the, the end game, and this is where we really make a difference in the real world, not just in standards, because again, going back to the fact that 
standards affect everything everywhere. So, so they affect all of us in almost everything we do. So the ideal scenario is all standards are systematically developed to be gender responsive standards, which means that all those products, services, and processes, which are the subject of the standards, are also therefore gender responsive, you could say, or, or enabling of gender equality um, where they're used so that everybody affected by the use of these standards is having, is getting the same benefit, is having the same experience, whether it's being equally protected or, or um, having it um, equally um, usable regardless of, of your gender. Um, that's the ultimate that's the ultimate goal for me, but also as, as Deborah mentioned earlier, that we have a standards development process that enables that to happen and equally, you know, it, it enables women to, part to effectively participate in standards development and that we have better gender balance amongst our standards makers because we know that better gender balance leads to better outputs and outcomes. It increases creativity, improves decision-making, so it makes for a better experience for everyone, but it also makes for a better product um, if we have more gender balance in amongst the participants. And that's about ensuring that we have the environment, as Deborah mentioned, and the processes that enable that to be true. Now, you both mentioned that some of the some of the principles have been put in place and some of the processes and the practices that are being adopted now to ensure that standards are more gender responsive. I just wonder, maybe you could pick out, you know, one thing that's happening next at, at national, European, maybe an international levels. You know, what's the next thing that's going to be done in this area of activity? Maybe start with you, Deborah. So at Senselec, um, let me start by saying what we're currently doing so that you know why the next thing is coming. We currently have a gender action plan um, that started back in 2020, and it was a um, three-year period. So at the end of 2022, it will be over. So what is coming next is very much designing, developing the next gender action plan, defining our activities based on the lessons we've learned along the way of the first um, plan. I think that will be, um, that's that's the next big thing on our side. Um, and of course, and I'm sure Stephanie will, will complement that, but there's a lot of um, deliverables that we're, we're expecting from the community around gender responsiveness. As Stephanie said, we've been working on developing methodologies um, and, and tools to help us now actively make gender responsive standards. So that's, that's the big thing. But Stephanie, I'm sure you have many things to say about that. So yes, so at um, European and international level, so the, the UNEC um, Gender Responsive Standards Initiative has a draft set of guidelines for the development of gender responsive standards, which covers not just the deliverables, as Deborah mentioned, but has um, good guidance also about how to change the standards development environment and process, as well as how um, to go about effectively engaging more women in standards development. And those guidelines are, are currently available for public comment and will be published. The final document will be published later this year. But the ISO and IEC Joint Strategic Advisory Group also published um, similar guidelines. And, and it was a great success that we got approval 
to share those guidelines with the community of standards makers within ISO and IEC. So the, the technical committees there will be um, given these guidelines um, to help them uh, consider gender in the development of, of the standards they're developing. So that is, a, I think, a fantastic milestone. And also that joint strategic advisory group has had his remit extended because what all of the communities talking about this have identified is this is not a one hit wonder. In other words, we're not going to do something now and then, you know, sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, job done, moving on, what's next? This this needs to be an ongoing conversation. You only have to look to certain countries around the world, which shall remain nameless, where where gender <laughs> equality is literally reversing. They are reversing laws and all kinds of other things that that were safeguarding gender equality and the the quality of women's rights. So so to, to suggest that we can do a few things now and then that's the end of it um, is, is, is not realistic. And so it's wonderful as well that ISO and IEC have recognized and that the Joint Strategic Advisory Group will continue. The UNECE Gender Responsive Standards Initiative will also be continuing. That's also been approved, which I, again, I think is fantastic news. So now it's about how do we how do we embed this into our ecosystems, our own national systems, into our processes? How do we provide more training and support? How do we share knowledge and experiences? So those are kind of a lot of the next steps happening. But I think I think for me the key message is the exciting bit hasn't been done already. So for those who want to get involved, <laughs> there's plenty of excitement still to come. So don't be shy. <laughs> Please do come forward if you have some knowledge and experience that can help us. Um, don't hesitate. I, can I just add that on my list of things that when I was thinking of, of what to say today, all of my points start with continue our sense and like group, continue our work under the gender action plan, continue our work with the Women for Cyber Foundation, etc. So yes, continuation. Let's not lose the momentum just because it's been a couple years that we've been talking about the topic. There's still a lot to be done. So is there a wider context here in terms of diversity and inclusion in standards development more broadly? Um, well, in fact, I think it's it's a very good question, Cynthia, because um, inclusiveness uh, as a term has been very much at the heart of the standardization system and especially the European standardization system since, you know, forever. Inclusiveness was is part of, of our identity, is part of how we function. We've always thought about inclusiveness mainly in terms of stakeholders' categories, so making sure that we have industry, SMEs, but also societal stakeholders, policymakers, um, researchers, etc., um, around the table, because we know that the more diverse um, the people around the table, the better quality or deliverables. Um, so gender is, is an aspect of this, but indeed uh, diversity and inclusion in the standard world is, is broader than that. It's gender, it's other individual characteristics, it's accessibility, um, you name it, and it's also at um, stakeholders categories level. Yeah, I think, I think it's a great question. And I think we get asked all the time, why are you focused in terms of gender on men and women only, and not inclusion of all gender identities 
or as the question asks, well, isn't isn't there a wider issue around diversity and inclusion? And as Deborah said, on some level, being inclusive has always been part of, of the ethos and the approach because most of us, including BSI since the beginning, have had this multi-stakeholder approach. I think the, the realization that has come more recently is that actually it, it needs to go beyond just multi-stakeholder. So for example, if you're considering consumers, it's not just, you know, there isn't a one-size-fits-all consumer. So, so, so maybe you have to refine how you're thinking about consumers and maybe you need to think about whether it's men and women or vulnerable consumers and, and not vulnerable consumers. So, so I think that's the realization that's come. So, so it's enabling us to bring a, a different layer or a different level of sophistication to the work we're doing to try and ensure that what, that we're, we're creating these standards, which enable everything that we're equally enabling everything for everyone. And, and I think that's the piece of work um, that that's also happening sort of at the same time as, as the conversation around, around gender responsive standards. And, and in answer to the question that we always get about why gender as in men and women and not more broadly gender identities, particularly in the global context, we felt that we would have a greater opportunity to, to succeed by focusing on something um, more, more uh, narrowly, if you will, defined, which affects every community and country. There, there are men and women in, in every single country and, and the equality in men and, and men and women is a conversation that is generally more advanced in most countries than, than that conversation around the inclusion of all gender identities and equality for all gender identities. And we wanted to have something where we could demonstrate why it's important. And, and if it was going to be hampered to the point where we, we couldn't actually change anything or deliver a, a, anything, we thought we're never gonna get anywhere, whether it's on gender equality as in men and women or anything else. So, so we wanted something that can demonstrate why it's important how it can benefit um, the work we're all doing as, as standards development organizations and ultimately how that can increase our, our positive impact on wider society through our standards. So, so that's where we are, but certainly it's, it's definitely a much, a much bigger conversation. Oh, that was really great, wasn't it? To hear that passion and commitment from Deborah and Stephanie to this really important topic and our thanks to them for speaking to us for this episode. Yes, absolutely. It was really great talking to them. And Matthew, I wanted to pick up on that call to arms about getting involved that Stephanie mentioned towards the end there, that if you have something to share, you know, get involved because we are always keen to promote participation in standards. And as we've said it many times, but it's worth repeating again, if we don't get a diverse range of views and perspectives around the table, we can't make the best standards. Of course, and this diversity is part of the wider context of diversity and inclusion that Deborah and Stephanie finished with and that much bigger conversation she spoke about. In yes, indeed. And I think maybe the subject for a future episode. Yes, definitely. We should do that. <laughs> now, to finish, I wanted to share something Deborah sent to me after we had recorded, which I think really sums up the issues we've talked about. She said this. 
It's not only about changing the way we make standards. It's about a cultural or societal mindset. It's about ensuring standards support the counterbalancing of wider societal inequalities. Standards are part of a wider ecosystem. As standards makers, we need to make sure they reflect the diversity of people they serve, be they users or consumers, and do not further increase gender inequalities in society. Beautifully put, Deborah. Well, that's the show. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Matthew. Now, to find out more about the issue of gender-responsive standards, check out the links in the show notes. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. You just heard a stripped media production. 